I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome back to the Shamrock after a bit of a break. And we've we've heard from our dear listeners uh, as I was out on the alumni speaking tour uh, this last week in Seattle, in Dallas, in Denver, everywhere I went. When's the Shamrock coming back? What's happened to the Shamrock? I love the Shamrock. We actually did, Matt and I recorded a show last week that I think was only heard by our producer, John Hayes, and my daughter, Sloan, who was just hanging out in the dining room as we recorded, ran into some technical difficulties and didn't get posted. So... Matt, uh, it's good to be with you again officially with everyone listening to what we have to talk about. Yeah, it's, I'm glad you made the time for us, Pete. You've been a road warrior in the speaking tour even more than Marcus Freeman was back in the spring. I mean, uh, true traveler, Ryan Harris, Kim McDaniel, I'm sure a couple other Irish dignitaries that... No one, uh, uh, when I was in Dallas, no one gave me a cowboy hat, though, like Marcus got, which was a little disappointing. So maybe you get a hat? Something, uh, something to look Brian Kelly to. got boots during the, uh, what was it, the Sun Belt? Or Sun Belt, Sun Bowl. Yes. Um, back in 2010, and that picture went viral when Texas job opened multiple times in the last decade. Um, what was that like? That? I mean, I'm sure it was good to reconnect with some of those guys. Ryan, obviously, is a friend of the show, and we see him every week. But um, what was the the tour like? It was. I mean, it was good. There was there was so much enthusiasm for um, Notre Dame football. The Shamrock. And, yeah, the Shamrock, of course. Um, I think that really brought people out to figure out what's up with the podcast. But I've done the Seattle group probably five times, and we had double the attendance of any other um at denver it was the largest crowd that i've had for that event and in dallas it was i've never done dallas before it was sort of their student send up they i think they had more than 200 people there um you know it was myself cam mcdaniel and dan novikov who was a offensive lineman um more like during the era parsegian days speaking and chris ackles the stadium announcer was there uh, to sort of MC <laughs> it but i mean the enthusiasm for um for Marcus Freeman and Notre Dame football this season is, it is unique. It, it I sort of described it on the the speaking tour. It's like, I think the fan base is sort of waited for a, a head coach that they felt comfortable getting their arms around. And then also waiting for a head coach that then also wanted to embrace them back opposed to like, I don't want to be touched, um, which I think was more of the vibe before. So yeah, I, I think that with Freeman here, it's, it's a different vibe. And I mean, I th- one thing that, stood out to me is like the um, the age of the alumni at the events skewed a lot younger all of a sudden. So I think maybe <laughs> even sort of the uh, youth of Marcus Freeman maybe is translating to the the fan base on, you know, the younger side engaging a little bit more. I'm curious for that, about that last comment you made. I mean, my first year covering Notre Dame was 2011. So it was Brian Kelly's second year. So I didn't get to experience the whole like honeymoon period, if you will, um, that we're seeing now with Marcus Freeman. Part of it obviously was like Notre Dame was so bad for so long they were going to embrace anyone who wasn't Charlie Weiss back in 2010. 
And Brian Kelly at the time had the rep of being like, you know, the son of a politician with Northeastern Catholic ties. And he's kind of the perfect fit for this place. I feel like what I read at the time, and again, I wasn't there. I can't compare it to right now, but it, it sounded at least in that first year or two, not similar to now, but, but, you know, a lot warmer and cuddlier than it ended up being as far as the head coach relationship with the fan base, the alumni, Notre Dame nation as a whole. Is that there, yeah, accurate? That's, that's fair. I, it was not as warm as it is now, but like mm-hmm. Brian Kelly never engendered that kind of like emotion from the Notre Dame fan base. I think there was like more of a desperation from the fan base back then because right. they had lost for so long. But I also think there was a lot of skepticism around Brian Kelly, just not mm-hmm. because it was Brian Kelly, but just because like, all right, we've heard this before with Willingham, with mm-hmm. Weiss, with Davey. Like, there, I remember even talking to Bill Scholl, who was like the AD for football. Now the AD, he's the AD at Marquette now. But um, and him saying like, even he sensed like people are. It was more like, all right, let's wait and see. Um, and I think with Marcus Freeman, there's not a whole lot of like let's wait and see vibes from the fan base. It's like, yeah, we're on board with this guy. So I, I think that that was something I definitely picked up from um you know the, these alumni events that uh people want to be all in with Marcus Freeman in a way that even at the beginning I think even well maybe for like a month with Brian Kelly in 2012 they were all in with him um before the like at the end of the season before the Alabama game um but I don't think that there was ever sort of this embrace of Kelly the way that there is of Freeman just based on these alumni events Yeah I mean I I think you know, especially those first two years for Brian Kelly, it was, it wasn't, all right, are we going to be good? It's like, can we ever be good again? Yes. And I think every blue blood goes through that identity crisis at some point or another. We see it right now at Nebraska. We saw it with Michigan before Jim Harbaugh came back. I mean, you know, Alabama, even before Nick Saban came there. And I think there was always a sense of like, well, if this guy can't do it, Brian Kelly, you know, the, the, the Irish guy with, with, political tie, Northeast ties, who's one big, every single level he's been, I can't do it. Like, can we ever be good? Like right. it was a decade ago this summer, the, the, can they ever be relevant again? Discussion like was like an actual thing. Whereas now it's like, can they win a national championship? And I think the answer to the can part is yes. And I think we've seen enough from the Freeman era without coaching a regular season game so far to let people dream that big and not, um, feel like it's too far out of reach. Um, but, but, but I think the combination of the success they've had the last five years or so, adding a young, very charismatic coach who's a hell of a recruiter so far has created this fever pitch of excitement around the program that, that I can't remember. I, yeah, I'm with you on that. And I think that, look, the, the roster, I mean, we bang on Brian Kelly's recruiting quite a bit. However, the roster is way better now than it was when Brian Kelly got here in terms of the balance on both sides of the ball. And like, you know, I, I was out at practice on Friday of last week for the full practice. You saw like bits and pieces on Saturday and Monday. Um, I mean, you can't, to me at least, it's like, I can't, for all the questions about Marcus Freeman, I look at the roster and be like, you know, is it the perfect roster? Certainly not. But I look at Notre Dame and see like, this is a really talented team, particularly on the lines. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to look at Notre Dame and not think they're going to be very good this year, just based on how good 
the offensive and defensive lines appear. It's funny you say that because that was kind of my takeaways from from being around two days, um, both Saturday and Monday over this past week slash weekend. Um, we, we've talked about the vibes, right? We just talked about it with the fan base. We, we talk about it with the program. I, there's obviously like this unspoken understanding that, holy cow, we've got like the biggest opener we could possibly have in week one. We've got to be ready for that. And if we're not, we're going to get a rude awakening. But I, I just get the sense that this is a very confident slash veteran team right now that knows itself about as well as a program that has a new first-time head coach can possibly um, know itself. I mean, and talking a new to all and a, new, yeah, and a new quarterback. I mean, talking to you know all the linebackers yesterday. Like it, it you would never know that this is a group that's on its four, excuse me, third position coach in as many years. Like even Al Golden w- w- was talking about how when he came, I think when he was with the Lions to um, scout and interview draft prospects and he talked to Drew Tranquil and wow, this guy learned a lot from Clark Lee. Like he knows the defense really well. And like that was multiple eras ago. And it, it's not like, oh, hey, there's this constant turnover, like People are getting fired. People are leaving for other jobs. No, like the last two guys literally became power five head coaches. Mm-hmm. And the guy coaching them right now is a former power five head coach at Miami. And you know, I, I asked a couple of players this, and maybe I phrased it the wrong way. I said, you know, how do you essentially protect the culture of this room? Because they keep saying, Coach Freeman keeps saying it's a player led program. It's a player led program. And like we don't protect it, but like, like even hearing Al Golden say, like, I, he was almost like taken aback by how much they knew and how, like the, the depth of their questions. It's not like he's teaching a new playbook and a new language to these guys. It, it's very much, I think he used the term riffing. Like he can have adult conversations with these guys, which um, is interesting considering he just came from the NFL level over the past six years. Um, but, but I think speaks to the unique culture of that room and just, just how they, they, I don't want to say persevere because it's not like they're going through anything difficult, but, but it is challenging to have a new voice at the head of that room every single year. I mean, you know, uh, Bo Bauer, perfect example, same linebackers coach slash defense coordinators first three years here. And now his last three, which I guess overlaps with that third year all has different voices. And it's hard to find three more distinct, unique voices and personalities than Clark Lee, Marcus Freeman, and Al Golden. Um, well, how about but, the, uh, when I was reading your story and, and James like, Laurinaitis and James yeah. Laurinaitis, I might add, who's no small voice in that room as well. It was funny. Uh, reading your story on like the linebackers on the athletic, you, you know, reference Bo Bauer and like three different position coaches, you know, who was the defense coordinator when he committed to Notre Dame? Brian Van Gorder. It was Brian Van Gorder. I mean, that that's how long ago, uh, Greg, Greg Hudson, <laughs> Yeah, Greg Hudson. Bo Bauer. I mean, it was, it was before the 2016 season he committed to Notre Dame. Um, and in, in that way, I think that, Bo Bauer is probably older than some of the guys Al Golden coached with the Bengals last year. You know, if you had a rookie, he's older than a rookie because he's in his sixth year now. So it, um, it's a very mature group. And I mean, I think you've sort of looked at some of the, the old linebackers Notre Dame has had. They, you, the ones that maybe are not like athletic freaks, like I'm not talking about Jalen Smith here, but yeah. or it'd be Joe Schmidt. Um, I mean, Drew Tranquil was a very good well, athlete. Also. Good draft pick. Yeah, Wusu Kormar was an athletic freak. But like when you had the older guys um, who can get a lot done, it's probably a really good match for a defensive coordinator who wants to get a lot done uh, because of 
you know, just how smart they are. You know, the checks, the adjustments, the playbook, it can be complicated when your linebackers are Kaiser, Bertrand, and Bauer with Leo Fowl rotating in. So it's, um, it's a unique spot. I, I'm, I think it's how Notre Dame takes what Golden can do and the, you know, sort of higher, you know, graduate level defensive playbook, how Notre Dame can sort of take that with graduate level linebackers and, and make that go, I think is sort of a, an underrated part of how good this team can be. Um, quarterback is really interesting to me because I, I get the sense that even though they haven't named a starting quarterback, there's no, there, there certainly is no, uh, you know, drama about it. Um, it's just a matter of how quickly they want to name Tyler Buckner as a starting quarterback. And I mean, you spent a little time with Buckner on Saturday and Reese, and I'm sure we've had conversations with similar people around the Google summer. It's just, it's never a question of like how talented he can be. It's just, you know, can he sort of put it all together and do the, everything else that a, a starting quarterback has to do at Notre Dame with, from a leadership point of view, not that, I think there's doubts about it. It's just he hasn't done it yet. And now, now he has to sort of, instead of following, as he followed Jack Cohn last year, he's got to be the guy in front of the room. And that's, even if it's, I think, a jump that everyone around Notre Dame thinks he will make fine, it's, you still got to do it. I mean, that's the first thing Tommy Reese said when he was asked, you know, what do you want to see from Tyler Buckner this camp was like, if you're the starting quarterback, you have a presence about you when you walk into that huddle and you take that snap and there's no doubt about who's leading this offense. And that's what we want to see. And, and Buckner spoke you know, multiple times about, you know, some variation of the word confidence. Basically said, if you, you know, if you're confident, that's the first step. Now you can, can, you know, master the offense, so to speak. And uh, Buckner did his best to remind us all when we spoke to him Saturday, that it was too, Two practices in shorts with no pads. They'd done nothing outside red zone drills. Um, he, he was very much not getting ahead of his skis right there. And look, he, he reminded me a lot of Tommy Reese, the player, at least from a, a mental standpoint, from an interview standpoint. Um, and even to hear Tommy Reese use that that you know kind of descriptor of Tyler Buckner as a guy who needs to take command of the offense. I mean, you know that that was Tommy Reese. I mean, the guy went four zero as a true freshman three-star recruit um, with a new coaching staff and, and end up starting a heck of a lot of games throughout the rest of his career um, be, because he was able to win over that locker room and because he knew the playbook and because, you know, there was no doubt who was leading that offense when he was under center. And I, I think that relationship is only grown. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I wrote this in my story, Buckner committed name in March of 2019. That was a right. year before we knew what COVID was like, <laughs> that's yeah. how long ago it was. And he's 19 years old still. And he's only entering his second year of college. And, you know, he, he, he's him and Drew Pine are very good friends. They've both spoken a lot about that. And, you know, as with any quarterback competition, you know, both guys get asked about the relationship and what do they talk about? And, and Buckner, you know, kind of, Casually, so like, yeah, we don't we don't talk about the competition, and and someone um, responded like, well, what do you talk about? And he was like, there's a lot of things in life other than just our quarterback competition, which is a sobering reminder for all of us, media fans, people, yeah. probably people in the building. Like, these are 19 year old college kids, and um, you know, as Tommy Reese referenced, like he battled Andrew Hendricks, you know, in some form or another every year they were in school together and they were part of the same recruiting class. And he was in Andrew Hendricks's wedding long after they graduated and they're still the best of friends. Like 
Um, so the, 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 to your point, there's no drama with you know how this will unfold. Um, the drama is what will presumably number 12 look like when the lights finally come on because uh, that, that's a hell of a, an opening stage to make your debut. Oh, there's there's no doubt. I think going back to spring practice, I, I could be mistaken, but I, I'm pretty sure that either Buckner or Pine said that for like Valentine's Day, they both went to Chicago with their girlfriends together. Like they're friends, um, which mm-hmm. is like, totally normal college stuff. Um, you know, not everything is like an NFL <laughs> cutthroat position competition. So that's, that's fine. And that's normal. Um, I don't Was there anything else that sort of turned your head during your practice doings? For me, it was sort of watching Tobias Merriweather running around, um, the freshman receiver, um, had heard a lot of good things from people on you know, inside the Goog during the summer about his workouts, about really his football IQ was very high. Um, they were, the staff was very pleased about how, how much he just sort of understood offense and concepts and sort of bigger picture stuff in a way that maybe even some of like the sophomore receivers did not. Um, so that, that was probably the, the largest, like, oh, okay, I could, I could see where Merriweather is going to be the exception rather than the rule with freshman receivers who come in and like, okay, they look good in the first month of August, first couple weeks of August and the season starts, you don't hear from them again. Um, They need Merriweather badly to, to be something. um, But I think there's a very, very, very good chance that he will be. Yeah. I mean that, you know, you saw me nodding as you said that, I mean, that's my one takeaway just from talking to people around the program and from the very limited viewing periods we've got in this Bias Merriweather looks like the real deal so far. And now we've said this about freshman receivers before, at least have gotten ahead of ourselves with freshman receivers before. But if Notre Dame's going to take that next step this season, they're going to need some kind of leap or some kind of surprise of that magnitude. And I think especially with the new starting quarterback, um, you know, that so far so good. Now, today's Tuesday. I believe today's the first day there in pads. Um, practice number five, we are not there. We'll obviously learn a lot more just from seeing them play actual football. But um, that, it, as far as like surprises and unknowns, I mean, we talked about the linebackers, we talked about the defensive line. I think the front seven is going to be really, really good this year. Um, that's the biggest kind of like eye opener so far. And again, we're, we're, we're probably projecting a little bit here, but um, that, that has to be an encouraging sign if you're the Irish coaching staff so far. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. If Tobias Merriweather finished the season with 25 catches for 462 yards and five touchdowns, like you're, you're taking that right very, now. If you're Notre Dame? That's a very specific line. Like, are you referencing someone in the past when you say that? 
I am. But like, if if you're Notre Dame, oh, Williams, oh, oh. would you take that? I'm trying to think who that might be now. <laughs> <laughs> what year was that? It was uh, 2016. EQ or Chase Claypool? It was Chase Kevin, Claypool. Ke- Chase Claypool. No, no, no. It was Kevin Stefferson. Oh, that was his freshman sure, year. Let's think... make all the Stefferson comparisons. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, and I don't say that to bring like 2016 was just, great. It was yeah, a great camp for him. does not need to enter the chat here, but <laughs> yeah, I think if you're Notre Dame, like you can get a, or if you're not a fan, you can sort of get a little carried away about like, okay, what Merriweather can be as a freshman. But like, if he did that, I think Notre Dame would take that in a heartbeat. Um, Cause it's rare for a freshman to really produce with any kind of consistency, but almost 500 yards and, and the five touchdowns in particular, I think that w- that would be a great, great start for Tobias Merriweather as a college football player. If he does that within the context of everyone we think we know about playing to their own standard, then yes, I would agree with you. Yeah. I mean, you need the run, but if they get another injury like or whatever, they're going to, yeah. yeah. Styles has got to be eight, nine hundred, a thousand yards, um, which I think he has in them. And then, you know, mayor, I I want to find a prop bet about like how much I can pump up mayor's receptions for the seasons. Like what kind of odds could I get for like 105 catches for a tight end? Because I feel like I might bet the over on that. What's the nerdy record for a tight end? Or for anyone uh, really? For, he, well, he I said it Floyd's last year. He, he broke it last year for receptions in a season. Um, so okay. I, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but like I wonder if he could challenge more like the Michael Floyd was it 2011 right. when he went over 100 years? I think he went over 100 catches that year. Like that to me is kind of the the sandbag so that Michael Mayer can play in this. May, Mayer had 71 catches last year. Yeah. So that was the tight end. I, uh, I think 100 is an appropriate, like, yeah, yeah, he could do that. That's what you're shooting for. Um, and yeah, I would love to see how Mayer would handle that because when he broke the tight ends record uh, at Stanford last year, he uh, was very magnanimous when he thanked the other 11 players on the field with him because um, that was a big part of how he broke the record. And they were like, wait a minute, Mike, there are only 10 other players on the field with you. Oh. But anyway, <laughs> that's Michael Mayer for you. He is, uh, he is a character. Uh, I think one of the things that I'm interested to see moving forward, I think we get a full practice next week, and there are a few more glimpses this week, is we have access to Harry Heastan, the offensive lineman, Thursday, I believe, um, later yes. this week. Uh, interested to sort of chat with Blake Fisher for the first time in quite a while, um, and Joe Alt since the first time midseason. You know the the Jarrett Patterson Zeke Carell combination, how that works. Uh, it's notable to me, at least, that when I've watched Terry he stand at practice and he's been coaching like the left side of the line with Alt and Patterson and Carell together, it's been like all positive all the time. Um, and as we know, Harry, he is not one to hold back with criticism when it's warranted. Um, so if you're winning over Harry, he in week one of training camp that I think bodes rather well for the offensive line moving forward. And then, you know, the corner play, you know, Lewis Bracey cam Hart, I think has a chance to be pretty good as a starting lineup. And then can you get something from Jaden Mickey as your fourth does he move into your third later in the year? But I do think there's there's just a chance that uh, that Notre Dame in some ways could be better at some of the, uh, at least in the secondary, than I would have thought when camp started. 
my concern there is essentially who they're opening with because they're not going to face a better group of receivers. I don't know if there are better group of receivers in the country than Ohio State. And I don't know if there's a more fragile position on any roster at any level of football than quarterback, as we've seen at Notre Dame with early season meltdowns, you know, decade ago yeah. or so. Um, that, that That's where, like, I, 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 I like, want to pause myself uh, before from saying anything or make any prognostications before that game, because I just think if that game goes wrong for them, and to be fair, anyone facing Ohio State's receivers usually is on the losing end of it, um, you know, it could – torpedo into a long season for them if they don't handle yeah. that the right way. And I, I just, based on what we'd last seen from these guys last year, based what we last seen from the current Ohio state crop receivers um, in the Rose bowl against Utah's defense. Uh, I'm, I'm pausing all, all praises, expectations, even bad words. I just want to like, see that thing, see them get through that before I can really give you an idea of how I think they'll be this year. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. It's there's, there's a, and you know, is, is game one going to be a great test of that secondary? Um, probably be more of an unfair examination. <laughs> but I think over the course of the season, they have they have a chance to be maybe better than the fan base would have thought on January 1st at 10.30 p.m., um, at which point you're like, holy crap, this, is a, this group is struggling. I don't know how they can put it all together a year from now at Ohio State. And, like, Ohio State's going to torch a lot of people um, – Notre Dame might be one of those teams, but uh, I think there's a, there's more material to work with there than at least I would have thought coming out of the end of last season. I don't know if I mean was there anything else that um, caught your attention? Audric estimate for me on on Friday was interesting. Maybe it's the number seven um, that just like looks it looks fairly slimming on a big guy. Um, he moved around a lot better than I thought a big back would be. I always thought he was maybe more of your it's third and three. I'll get right. you three and a half yards, like Leroy Horde or something. Um, but he moved really well. Um, you know, as a number two back behind Chris Tyree, who also I think looks more like physically put together than I remember last season. You know, may, maybe they have a little bit more there to work with. Uh, it's funny. Tommy Reese got asked about that. Like, can this guy be more than can Otter Kessmade? Be more than like what we think he is by looking at him. And Tommy basically said, like, look, I'm with you. Like I, I've seen him in practice, so I know what he's capable of. But like you take one look at that guy and you immediately stereotype him as this third down bruiser and not a guy with with much more nimble legs than he probably gets credit for. So um that would be a very positive development for what's a very thin running back core yeah. um going into week one. Um and as we've seen and as I think you wrote in a mailbag um earlier this month, um if there is a formula for, you know, beating Ohio state, it, it's punching them in the mouth like that. It, it's taking advantage of what in the last couple of years has not been the strongest linebacking core in the country out of Columbus and, and doing what Oregon did, did last year, doing what Michigan did last year and right. winning those short yarded situations and keeping the ball out of their offense's hands. Um, I, I don't know if there's anything else on the team you wanted to jump into before we get into uh... We had a, a fairly lengthy conversation on our mystery podcast heard by two people last week about. We broke all sorts of realignment news. Oh, like it was, it was unbelievable. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, yeah, we revealed the future of Notre Dame's uh, conference affiliation, um, but I, I feel awkward repeating it. But we did get into like the $75 million figure that Dennis Dodd sort of threw out there or reported and 
and I haven't seen it really picked up elsewhere. Um, but last night, word started to leak out about the Big Ten's uh, media rights deal, which, like, if these figures are correct, let's just sort of assume that they are for the sake of discussion. Um, looking at $350 million from CBS for the second Big Ten game, not even the first one. Um, or for half of the B package. Like, they're splitting that with NBC. Like, that's right. not even... That's for 13 games. Yeah. So it's like Big Ten game two and a half on average uh, for $350 million. I'm assuming the NBC deal will come in something similar. Uh, the Fox deal, I think, is I've seen that reported out over $500 million. Basically, we're, you're, you're cruising into the billions at that point with the potential for a streaming add-on, whether it be Apple or Amazon. It's not really clear. Um, you know, it's this is... And sort of as a... It's probably a conversation for another time, but like the streaming aspect of it, whether it's Amazon or Apple, I was told that when Amazon got the NFL package, like they don't have a single camera for that. They're just leasing all of NBC's stuff because they have so much money they can afford to do it. Um, but Big Ten probably cruising into the billion dollar range. Um, there's a bunch to unpack there, whether it is... NBC having the primetime slot for the Big Ten. Where does that leave Notre Dame? You know, can they have a primetime home game? I'm assuming that they're going to make that work. Um, but also the CBS one, that that's sort of the figure that's been reported the most at 350 million for 13 games. If CBS is getting a good, not a great, but a good Big Ten game every week for $350 million, how much are seven Notre Dame home games worth? Because oh, at that point, the- I'm like, wait a minute. Maybe the seventy-five million actually is undervalued, right? I mean, there's been a lot of math out there, which I'm not good at, but I did do the math with this one, which basically seven, you know, at that rate, seven games is 108 would be valued at 188 million dollars, roughly. Yeah. Uh, now we both, when we saw that initial report about a month ago about seventy-five million, um, as Notre Dame's, you know, reported asking price from NBC to stay independent, and, and NBC would essentially supplement that with shoulder programming from the Big Ten or, or another conference. I heard mixed reactions around Notre Dame. I had some people flat out dismiss it. I had other people say, no, that sounds pretty much like what we've talked about in the past. Yep. And I think my reaction initially as someone who doesn't work in like the TV you know, negotiation space like you was, well, 75 when you're getting probably 15 to 20 right now. And again, this is a private school. We don't have like tax documents or, um, you know, we can't FOIA this the way we can with, you know, the Big Ten and other public schools, but Notre Dame is believed to be making somewhere in the ballpark of 15 to $20 million per year from their NBC deal. You go from that to 75 and that sounds like a major upgrade, even if it's not quite what you'd be getting as a full-fledged member of the Big Ten and their media rights deals. Now, John Aaron of the Sports Business Journal, and I feel like others you know, more plugged into that scene, all immediately came out and said, like, that would be a bargain for NBC, 75, paying only 75 million. Um, which makes me wonder, like, how much are they leaving on the table from their media rights deals? But then you see the reports coming out last night and you do the math. And I know it, not everything is an apples to apples comparison. And there's something to be said for, for having essentially your own network. But like seven games at that rate that CBS would be paying for, again, 13 Big Ten games, like half of their tier B package. Um, that's $180 million, which is what, 100 and 
70 million more <laughs> than her name is getting right now from NBC. And I know it's not that simple, but, but, you know, for arguments purposes, we'll go with that. Um, I mean, I, I, I think this is good news for, for Notre Dame in the sense that if NBC is in play as they reportedly are, it, like that's good. That elevates the Notre Dame football product on NBC. Perhaps they can go back to the drawing board with their current deal early. It's currently not up till 2025, 26, um, and Notre Dame can can get a lot more money out of that. I, I don't know what you know. Everyone has a price, right? What what would the price of independence be? They always pay that independent tax, like you say. Um, that tax presumably grows higher with as much more money as the SEC and Big Ten make every year. Um, you know, how does Notre Dame bridge that gap, so to speak? Is that sustainable? If you get your own deal at one hundred eighty-eight million dollars, <laughs> sure, it's all sustainable. I don't think yeah. that's going to happen. That's more but... than your, that's more than anyone else is making. I mean, that's exactly. that's more than the big the top of the Big Ten or the top of the SEC would make. Like, I think if Notre Dame would take half of that and be thrilled, because um, then they would be in the same ballpark as everybody else. When you throw in the ACC revenue that's still on the table, I got a lot of questions about this. Um, uh, you know, when I was in Seattle and Dallas and Denver about you know, where this is all going to go. And I've written this and it's probably worth repeating. It's like, I think we share this perspective is that Notre Dame is not going to be the first to jump. They're not going to be an early adopter, but they're not going to be the last one on the boat either. Um, all the you know, second point, Jack Swarbrick is not going to make any decisions without complete information. Um, that information got is getting a lot more complete now uh, with these figures coming out from the big 10 or around the big 10. So I think with that, with that in mind, you know, if Notre Dame can afford to stay, it seemed to me, it seems like Notre Dame can afford to stay independent more today than I would have thought 24 hours ago. That's, uh, that was sort of what my impression was on these numbers. I would agree with that, which is why I, ne I never, I never bought into this like public notion of like, all right, they're on the clock now. Like, you know, they, they, they have all the leverage. You know, there's if they don't do it now, when are they going to do it? Like I, I, I never saw this as this kind of urgent. They need to decide immediately matter, but I do think the additions of USC and UCLA to the Big Ten certainly changed the math and the big picture. Uh, from why would Notre Dame ever join a conference? To hmm, this is something they should probably seriously think about right now. When you look at the financial implications at play. Now, again, we get another reported data point last night from from those CBS numbers. Uh, that came out and, and to agree with you, I agree with you that, you know, maybe they don't need to do this. Now, I, I, I do think as conferences continue to expand, because I don't think this thing ever truly ends, um, that number just continues to grow further and further apart from whatever Notre Dame or any individual entity can make as an independent. And I, I think in that regard, uh, and in the scheduling regard, because again, the bigger these conferences get, the harder inventory becomes for scheduling games. Like I, I see it as an inevitability that Notre Dame one day joins the Big Ten. Now, I don't say that thinking it's going to happen tomorrow, but within the next five years, probably because I don't. Yeah. I mean, if anyone knows what college sports is going to look like in five years, they're kidding themselves. Like I don't think. <laughs> like I, I just think like you already see like you know Sean Clifford and and that that group from the Big Ten that was maybe going to unionize. Then they said, we're not going to unionize. But Kevin Warren basically said, like, we want you involved with discussions and potential revenue sharings. Like, I think when you go down that road, and again, there's a lot of time and a lot of work to get done between from getting from point A to point B. 
in that regard. But I think now that that's like out there as a, a somewhat tangible idea, revenue sharing, like players getting a cut of the pie. Once that like becomes a thing, you're either recruiting to a group where you can make money or you're not. And you're like, if you have the opportunity to be a part of that group, and if you want to still be in the business of big time football, if you're Notre Dame, I don't see how you don't eventually get on board with that. Now that's further down the road, but I think you're starting to see the plate shift a little bit toward where college sports is going. And I think there's only one way forward and you're either going to be a part of it or you're not going to be in business at all. This, and the most pointed question I got was like, tell me where, tell me where or where Notre Dame is in five years in terms of the conferences or not. And I, my prediction would be with Notre Dame will be in the big 10 within five years. I would agree. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, will the, I don't, I won't go as far as to say, will the ACC even be around in five years because they've got a deal that goes through 2036, but I think everyone's on very shaky footing right now. Yes. On the SEC or big 10. Yeah. I think that's, that's sort of where this is heading. Um, and I think that Notre Dame, I think we, you, we share a belief on this too. Notre Dame is probably more comfortable with conference affiliation internally than maybe some of the, the fan bases. But I think even, again, being out of this alumni group, I think the fans are probably more comfortable with it than I would have thought. Um, I, I was, was, was going to ask you, what was the reception? There, I mean, one guy came up to me and said, F them. Um, that was his take on Big Ten affiliation. Um, <laughs> I think he may have also been around. How, how old was this guy? <laughs> he was. I think he may have seen Fielding Yost coach Michigan. Um, definitely okay. on the older Agreed. side. So, But I think the, the younger fan base is just like, you know, independence is great. Um, but I think people want to see good games and the big 10 right. offers better game. Like the inventory of games within the big 10 is far superior than it is in the ACC. Um, I've, I've enjoyed the Clemson series. I feel like that's turned into a rivalry, but then you get to Miami. That's good. After that, I feel like, you know, Florida state has some history that has nothing to do with the ACC. You know, the rivalry with Miami right. has nothing to do with the ACC. Um, but after those three schools, everybody's sort of the same. And if you look at the big 10 and the, you know, after you get past Ohio state and Michigan to the Iowa, Wisconsin, I mean, Purdue has history behind it. I'm not saying that's a big game, but Penn state, Michigan state, USC, UCLA, there's just, there's a lot more meat on the bone, I think, from fan interest in the Big Ten right now than there is to being independent but being stuck with the five ACC games when really only one or two of them are interesting. That's the thing about, I mean, better quality of competition, better environments and venues. And like, you know, Nebraska, great example. Like, they can never. Yeah, I didn't even mention again. Nebraska. Like, but, it's a huge they brand. Can, they could go four and eight for the rest of time, and that's still going to be a cool game you know what i mean like yeah. i don't know if there's anything like that in the acc like florida state no. maybe but like it's just you just every single program in the big 10 for the most part has history or, or has something cool and unique that makes it you know purdue another great example now they won nine games last year and are in pretty good footing right now but like that's a pretty big in-state rivalry that maybe gets overlooked nationally but if that's your sixth best game on any given year that, that that's pretty good. Like that's a good opponent. That's a, a decent venue. There's a lot of history there. Um, Michigan state, another example, like there, there's just, there, there's a lot more tradition there on the gridiron and there's a lot more ties 
institutionally, I think, or at least from a football program standpoint with Notre Dame than there are with say Duke football or North Carolina football. Yeah. There's just not a lot of connection. And I think that you're sort of seeing like, there are a lot of reasons why attendance is down in college football. I'm not putting us all on Notre Dame's ACC schedule, but I don't sense there's much appetite from Notre Dame fans about coming to Notre Dame games against ACC opponents, not named Clemson and, and Miami. And I think you sort of see that with some of the crowds that they've drawn, you know, Notre Dame is still a big deal on the road. You know, when they go to Duke or they go to North Carolina or they go to Virginia, that's a big game down there, but they're they're all small venues though. Yeah. But when those teams come to Notre Dame, it's just, it's not. Um, And I think that the big 10 offers so much more opportunity to, you know, the big venue showcase game, you know, whether that is on Fox at noon or CBS at three 30 NBC at night, um, it will get like a, a premium treatment. Um, that way it will be, a, it will be a big deal more often, uh, when Notre Dame is playing on Saturday in the big 10 than it is with the ACC with this kind of half independence. I mean, you'll, you'll see this with UCLA, right? Like the Rose bowl will sell out every single for every single big 10 team they host at the Rose bowl. The first time will sell out. I think. Well, maybe and not that Maryland play, or Rutgers, but maybe not Maryland Rutgers. I forget the like but. <laughs> the the top eight teams in the Big Ten. Yeah, I think though that will that be a sellout game. Yeah, I mean, probably even more than that. I mean, I just it's a great venue that doesn't have like the greatest local football tradition in terms of UCLA, who, who hasn't had the best product on the field every year. But there are a lot of alums in that space, just like there are a lot of like I, I know a lot of USC alums here who are thrilled about it in Chicago because they're like, you mean I never have to get on a plane to see my team play again? Like, this is great <laughs> being in the Midwest. Like when you have big brands like that, like a nerd name, everywhere you go, there are fans that are ready to, to pay a premium to get in and see those games. And I just think it, it makes more sense. It's more like minded at the Big Ten level for Notre Dame than it is at the ACC level. There's, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. Um, we should probably talk a little bit of recruiting before we wrap up and we'll be back next Tuesday. I don't know if I mentioned that on top of the show or not. August 16th will be our next show uh, and we'll be weekly for the rest of training camp. And then twice week, weekly during the season, um, Matt and I have, will continue to podcast half asleep after night games immediately. So you have something else to do Sunday morning when you get up. You're, and you're going to Ohio State, right? I am. I booked that yesterday. I, I debated whether to take like the first flight out Sunday morning and go straight from the Shamrock <laughs> to the airport, but that just never works out well. So stick around Excellent. that afternoon. Uh, well, last week, Notre Dame picked up four-star linebacker Jaden Osbury from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, whose high school is actually on the LSU campus. Uh, Osbury's father is an athletic administrator and former LSU football player. Uh, on top of that, uh, they picked up a four-star running back, Dylan Edwards from Kansas. He's a former Kansas State commitment, uh, a verified 4-3 speed guy. He's also 5'9", 165, so you know, more of an all-purpose back than just a true every-down blazer. Ben Minich, a three-star safety from Ohio, uh, picked up. They wanted a fifth defensive back in this class. Also, it's probably pretty good insurance with uh, – Peyton Bowen, the four-star, almost five-star safety from Dallas looking around. And then over the weekend, they picked up a four-star offensive lineman from Pennsylvania, Peter Jones. So at that right now, as it stands, at least on the 24-7 sports 
composite team rankings, Notre Dame remains number one in the class of 2023 and number one in the class of 2024. I don't expect that Notre Dame will finish number one in the class of 2023. But again, we're sitting here on August 9th. It's worth noting that uh, for Notre Dame to be number one in the country in recruiting is, is significant. You forgot your namesake committing to Brian Kelly. Sheldon oh yeah, Samson Sheldon Jr. Samson Jr. At LCU on Saturday. Yeah, no, no relation, really? but um, no. I've cert- certainly a, an upgrade in Sampson's for Notre Dame's former head coach. <laughs> I guess we, maybe we that talk. was his first. That was his first next step to to find a find a Sampson that actually do something <laughs> for him. You should have tweeted that. Um, all all the uh, ranking talk. Uh, the coaches poll came out yesterday, and Texas got a first place vote. Oh, um, <laughs> and more important, more importantly, Notre Dame is number five, which is probably appropriate. All right, what do you think? Somebody asked me about this. It was texting me. It was like, man, that seems really high. Um, and my reply was basically like, well, somebody's got to be number five. Right. And I feel like it's, you know, we talked about this a lot. I don't know if it was last year or the year before where it felt like there was a, a pack in college football that separated a little bit. And this year to me, it's Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State. And then you could have four through ten mixed up you could leave them vacant and just like have a gap there um whether notre dame was 10th or fifth or seventh not really sure it makes that much of a difference or fourth even frankly i don't i don't know if clemson is that much better than notre dame but i feel like there's just a there is a gap between georgia at three and everybody else at four um notre dame sort of in that next tier of teams but i can't sit here with a whole lot of conviction and say Oh, Notre Dame is overrated, or they should be higher. Um, I think our boss Stu Mandel sort of did an overrated, underrated, and I, I was sure he was going to have Notre Dame as overrated, just because five seemed a little bit high. But he went on both sides of Notre Dame. He said Clemson was overrated at four, and Michigan was overrated at six. So, you know, by virtue of that, maybe he thinks Notre Dame should be four, and Notre Dame is underrated. I don't know, but it's um, somebody's got to be five. It might as well be Notre Dame. And that means Notre Dame will open with a top five game on the road for the first time since like the Holtz era when Notre Dame Michigan was like big time marquee game as a top five game, I think on a semi-regular basis. It's almost as if they should play these big 10 teams some more, Pete. Um, <laughs> I, we, we, did you fill out your, we, we had a, we have a staff poll coming out, I think next week or sometime this month, we all had to fill out. I, I did. I already do not remember where I had Notre Dame. Okay. I think I had them at six, but I got while filling it out, it was the same thing. I'm like, I can't. And look, especially with preseason polls, I think everyone beauty's in the eye of the beholder, right? Like it's not like, all right, we're, we're voting them off resume. Some people vote them off projections. I try to vote them off what I know about these teams right now. Like I had Michigan as a top 10 team. I remember that. I don't think Michigan will finish the season as a top 10 team, but when you look at that roster and you look at what they accomplished last year, it's hard not to put them as a top 10 team right now. But, but I, I do think, you know, you can say we're number five and that sounds great and it's not bad. I'm not dismissing it, but the gap, it, it's almost like the gap between a, a five-star and a low four-star as far as like, it may be only one check mark away, yeah. but the gap from the top three, and everyone else, um, I think, is still pretty pretty significant, and um, we'll we'll, realize, we'll figure out how significant that is in three weeks, right? A it is coming up. No? Yeah, less less than a month uh, from the opener, which 
we I feel like we're gonna I'm gonna wake up tomorrow and suddenly I'll be walking into uh the horseshoe. Like it's sometimes this I don't know, the preseason sometimes feel like it can drag. I feel like this one for Notre Dame is gonna like be fly by in a flash and suddenly we're gonna be in Columbus and podcasting of the shamrock afterwards trying to make sense of what the hell we just watched it's funny because we we've done that fairly recently right with those monday and sunday night but like the four to save game last year the opener on sunday night the louisville opener 2019 monday night like those were like good exciting games and like from a national standpoint huge because it was the only game going on but like i guess texas I, I guess in 2016 it, on sunday night yeah, so like I guess like last year, like they made that game more interesting than they should have. But like going into it, it was like, oh, they're only a seven point favorite. Like they should win. They're better yeah. than Florida State. Like there wasn't a whole lot of pre-game doubt about how those games would unfold. Whereas this one, it's like, no, no, really, this is a big deal. Like <laughs> really big deal. And if you win this one, holy crap, like love an all-time shamrock and probably an all-time season. Oh my <laughs> from god. Storylines. That was one thing um, when I was in Denver, uh, Ryan Harris and I were doing that event and I, I sort of referenced like, what if, no- what if Notre Dame wins that game? What will college football look like relative to Notre Dame? And I, I, I threw this out to Harris. I mean, he played in this game. If Matt Liner had tripped and fell, if Reggie Bush didn't push him into the end zone and Notre Dame had won that game, like to me, that's what it will feel like. Uh, if you're Notre Dame, if you win that game in terms of where they fit into the national landscape, it's at that point, you're talking about Notre Dame getting first place votes in the poll the next week. 10 year fully guaranteed deal for Marcus Freeman with no buyout or, or <laughs> offsetting provisions. Yes. Well, now, I happen. mean, let's, let's do we give Notre Dame credit for being a trendsetter on the 10 year fully guaranteed coaching contract? I don't think for, we should, for, that, but... for that part of it. Yeah. Not for um, still paying him out when he's got two or three other jobs in your years after coaching in Notre Dame. Um, it's funny. Cause like you think about that game, that's such like a cultural, like historical, like everyone knows where they were when they were watching it game. I, I the, the USC one, you know, five push push. I don't, it's hard to replicate that, but certainly the hype will be very, very, very big. Um, they would, I'll go as far as to say they'll be number two. I would vote them one if they beat Ohio State based off one week's body of work. I think George would still be one because they're playing a pretty good Oregon team. And they're yeah, I'm not the saying run. they should be. Voters. They would be number they're one. I'm just saying voters. somebody would vote them number one. Is, is there, and I know you talked a little bit about this on um, the AP podcast with our friend Ralph Russo, like, I hate to put it in these terms, but is there an acceptable path to a loss? Like oh, what's the the easiest yes. loss to stomach? I th- I think if you lost by a touchdown, like if it, it sort of looked like the Georgia game in 2019, I think you would take that in a second. I think the Florida State in 2014 would be a little bit difficult, like more difficult mm-hmm. to take based on the nature of that. Um, you know, I you look back at what Clemson in 2015. That would I think that would be tough to stomach because you felt like the coaching staff screwed it up. Um, right. But like the two, like if you lost by seven and there was no great, like, Oh man, this was a first time head coach really looked like a first time head coach. Then I think you can sort of swallow hard and move on um, and feel pretty good about where the season's going. If you're Notre Dame. 
2019 Georgia, I think, is kind of the perfect, like, neutral. Okay. Yeah. We know where we stand. We're going to be a damn good football team this year. Let's go win our next 11 games. Like, Florida State and Clemson, like, those games just do not evoke pleasant memories from 2014 and 2015. Like, I, 2014, obviously, you know, the last play just colors everything. But 2015 Clemson, I'm with you, like – even Brian Kelly afterward was like, yep, we just blew a tremendous chance to really break through here. Like we, we could have won this game and we didn't. Um, I don't know if you could say that about that 2019 Georgia game. Like they lost to a better team and had a faint chance to win at the end, which is all you can ask for. All right. Before we wrap up, uh, I think we're going to have a new semi-segment on the show, uh, capitalizing on a running joke that we have on Twitter and from our, our it's not previous a joke, guests. Pete. It's not a joke. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, yeah, it's definitely not a joke because it seems it seems real. These people are getting real bumps in their day to day lives. Um, of course, we're speaking about the Shamrock Bump, where we look at some of our former guests and just see how uh, see how well they're doing. Um, so my uh, my Shamrock Bump of the week or the month or the summer uh, goes to Tyler Plants, former Notre Dame walk on who uh, got married. In July, in the Basilica, uh, Father John, you know, did the, did the ceremony, which is uh, significant. You know, just pulling Father John. Uh, but if your if your uh, fiance now wife is the niece of Father John, it might be a little bit easier. So, well done, Tyler Plants. Shamrock. He's also also a first time head coach who's getting yeah. ready for his debut here in a couple of weeks at Providence Catholic. I am shocked, absolutely shocked, Pete. That you did not go with the slippery fox, who I believe over text messages last night between me and you was the inspiration for this new segment. Chris Fink, who came on the show last year and wanted, I think, predicted Notre Dame would beat Virginia by 100. And damn if they didn't come close to it without Brendan Armstrong. Um, he's not only on the Bears, I mean, they're so decimated at the receiver position right now. He's been running with the ones, according to some port- reports out of Hallis Hall uh, this week. So, Good on you, Chris Fink. You've always got a seat at the table on this show if you want to come back. Um, maybe uh, maybe Pete's cooled on you. I don't know. I'm just shocked that Pete did not uh, name this segment after you because I thought that's the direction we were going in <laughs> with this. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, that's it for our comeback edition of The Shamrock. Um, now it will just be regular uh, episodes of the podcast. We'll be back next Tuesday, August 16th. Thanks for returning to the show. It's good to be with you guys again. We're discussing maybe a live show later this summer, but certainly we'll do one of the, or the seat preseason. We'll definitely do one of those uh, interactive ones that we did before the Fiesta Bowl. That was fun. We'll get around to that too. So until then, he's Matt. I'm Pete. Thanks for being with us again, finally, on the Shamrock. Shamrock.